chapter 1 of Jeremiah, from verse 1. The words of Jeremiah, the son of Hilkiah, of the priests that were in Anathoth, in the land of Benjamin, to whom the word of the Lord came in the days of Josiah, the son of Ammon, king of Judah, in the thirteenth year of his reign. It came also in the days of Jehoiakim, the son of Josiah, king of Judah, unto the end of the eleventh year of Zedekiah, the son of Josiah, king of Judah, unto the carrying away of Jerusalem captive in the fifth month. Now the word of the Lord came unto me, saying, Before I formed thee in the belly, I knew thee, and before thou camest forth out of the womb, I sanctified thee. I have appointed thee a prophet unto the nations. Then said I, Our Lord Jehovah, behold, I know not how to speak, for I am a child. But the Lord said unto me, Say not, I am a child. For to whomsoever I shall send thee, thou shalt go, and whatsoever I shall command thee, thou shalt speak. Be not afraid because of them, for I am with thee to deliver thee, saith the Lord. Then the Lord put forth his hand and touched my mouth. And the Lord said unto me, Behold, I have put my words in thy mouth. See, I have this day set thee over the nations and over the kingdoms to pluck up and to break down and and to destroy, and to overthrow, to build, and to plant. Moreover, the word of the Lord came unto me, saying, Jeremiah, what seest thou? And I said, I see a rod of an almond tree. Then said the Lord unto me, Thou hast well seen, for I watch over my word to perform it. And the word of the Lord came unto me the second time, saying, What seest thou? And I said, I see a boiling cauldron, and the face thereof is from the north. Then the Lord said unto me, Out of the north evil shall break forth upon all the inhabitants of the land. For lo, I will call all the families of the kingdoms of the north, saith the Lord, and they shall come, and they shall set every one his throne at the entrance of the gates of Jerusalem, and against all the walls thereof round about, and against all the cities of Judah. And I will utter my judgments against them, touching all their wickedness, in that they have forsaken me, and have burned incense unto other gods, and worshipped the works of their own hands. Thou therefore gird up thy loins, and arise, and speak unto them all that I command thee. Be not dismayed at them, lest I dismay thee before them. For behold, I have made thee this day a fortified city, and an iron pillar, and brazen walls against the whole land, against the kings of Judah, against the princes thereof, against the priests thereof, and against the people of the land. And they shall fight against thee, but they shall not prevail against thee, for I am with thee, said the Lord, to deliver thee. And this evening we come to the book of Jeremiah. 
I saw, you will remember, something, I hope, of the studies that we have taken upon the book of Isaiah. Isaiah has laid for us a very clear and definite foundation for all the prophetical books. It is not by mistake that the Holy Spirit has placed the book of Isaiah first in this last division of our Old Testament, the prophetical books. And Isaiah, with his tremendous sweep of vision, in which he sees the whole economy uh, of God, the whole purpose of God, he sees every step, every stage. Uh, he does not see, of course, all the details about every stage. He doesn't understand everything uh, about each stage. But Isaiah sees further than the rest of the prophets in the comprehensive vision that he had, springing right from eternity to eternity, he saw the whole concept of God, how it all centered in Christ, what really God was after in humanity, how sin had wrecked everything, how God had answered the wreckage, how God was going to redeem the humanity, and how finally God was going to be vindicated and glorified and owned. He saw all of that. And he saw oh so clearly, and has been able to set down into writing, as he indeed was told to do, set down into a book what he saw. And we have with the book of Isaiah uh, the foundation laid for the rest of the prophetical books. All the other books that follow, and there are quite a number of them, large and small, all, as it were, come onto the foundation which Isaiah has laid. Perhaps we found Isaiah not so easy in some ways because it's dealing with so many matters that we're all now rather well acquainted with. The purpose of God. It's the grand uh, scope uh, of the purpose of God, and so on. But you see... A foundation has been laid, and now every other prophet is going to bring out some aspect in that purpose. It might be the establishment of that purpose. It may be the recovery of that purpose when lost. Uh, it can be all kinds of aspects to do with that purpose of God, how it relates to unsaved nations, how it relates to his own. But each prophet has an aspect to draw out. Uh, of the purpose of God, which Isaiah has um, uh, seen and set down for us as the first major step in this last division of the Old Testament. Now we come to the second book, and I think we shall probably find that the second book, in some ways, is more interesting, although it's an exceedingly difficult and complex book. There are a variety of reasons why we probably will find that. It is, of course, the second book of this last division of the Old Testament. In the Hebrew arrangement, Jeremiah is called rather beautifully with Lamentations, first and second Jeremiah. Um, Lamentations, which comes after Jeremiah, that little tiny book which seems so mournful to many, uh, is in actual fact in, in the Hebrew linked wholly with the book of Jeremiah and is looked upon as the second book of Jeremiah. Indeed, it was called commonly by ra the rabbis, the, the two of them were called the two Jeremiahs.
That was their uh, colloquial, almost their colloquial nickname. In some ways, there could not be a greater difference between Isaiah and Jeremiah. Um, the difference is unbelievably great. I don't know whether I shall be helped to somehow point out something of the difference tonight. But within the difference lies the value uh, of this second book. Both saw the same thing. That's the important point. They both saw the same thing. And they both had the same message to proclaim. It doesn't really matter whether it's Isaiah or Jeremiah. Both of them saw that sin leads to judgment, and judgment in the people of God leads to restoration, but in the world it leads to desolation. They both saw that. Both of them saw the judgment of God falling upon the people of God. Both of them saw the grace of God restoring the people of God. And both of them saw beyond it all to the coming of the Lord, the Messiah, and beyond that to the establishment of a kingdom. Both saw this. Both fearlessly proclaimed the message. It's not an easy thing, you know, um, to, uh, to proclaim fearlessly a message so filled with judgment. I would like to know what would happen if, if uh, one had to bring a message to the Lord's people, uh, ourselves, of judgment. I would like to see the faces of some people, how they would react, how angry they would be. Oh, it would be all right if we went to the world and proclaimed a message of terrible judgment to the world. But if we came to the Lord's people and so on, many would be very angry about it. They would be very hurt, they would be very offended, they would be very grieved. These men fearlessly proclaimed a message of judgment which was no easy thing for them to do. They lost their popularity, they became lonely men, rejected and forsaken by all except some who were prepared to suffer with them. Uh, to, to be linked with these men in many ways meant that you were linked with those that could at any moment have their lives taken from them. And uh, it was no popular, easy, uh, shallow thing uh, to be involved in. And yet, although these two men saw the same thing and both fearlessly proclaimed it in their day and generation, uh, there the similarity ends. Uh, Isaiah impresses us tremendously, at least he does me, with the beauty of his language. The utter beauty of his language. His style is not just polished, not polished in a cheap way. It, is, it belongs to one of the great orators of human history. His style is something which is, oh, just divine, it's heavenly, it's almost not of this of this world, the way he is able to put things into words, the way he uses words to express meaning. Uh, Isaiah was not just some uh, soapbox uh, uh, ranter or fanatic. Uh, Isaiah was able to use words, and he was able to use words with a depth and uh, a beauty of meaning, uh, which is a gift that is very rare. He, he impresses us with the, with the sheer beauty uh, of his language and of his concept. Uh, Isaiah 
some of us would have seen what Isaiah saw, you know, and put, would have put it in a way that was anything but beautiful. But Isaiah was able to put it in a way. You think of that wonderful 35th chapter, the wilderness shall blossom as a rose, and how he goes on, how he puts what he, what he says. Some of us would have sat down and all we would have said was, well, the backsliders will return to the Lord, and uh, they'll be satisfied, uh, and they'll have everything they want. And those that are a bit ugly and maimed uh, will be put right. But Isaiah was able to put it into a way that can only be described as, as beauty of concept, beauty of language, beauty of style, beauty uh, of, con of concept. Uh, everything about Isaiah is like that. The whole of his message is one harmonious unfolding step by step. There is nothing disjointed about Isaiah. When he proclaims judgment, he does it in a beautifully harmonious way. Direct, to the point, sharp as a two-edged sword. But nevertheless, every step, every stage of his denunciation, as well as his, as his proclamation of grace, is un, an unfolding harmony. Uh, forgive uh, the word, but Isaiah is well-oiled. Uh, there's nothing disjointed, there's nothing jerky, there's, there's nothing that somehow or other um, jars on you at all. It's almost beautifully oiled. I believe I, I called him like a Rolls Royce, described him like a, a Rolls Royce engine. Something that purrs. The way he speaks, the way he, he utters the message of God, the way it all pours out of him stage after stage, it's all beautiful. Not only language, but his style, each stage unfolding, like a, uh, taking us farther and farther until we come at last to the climax of his whole message. Everything with Isaiah seems to be under perfect control. Now, I've never, ever heard anyone suggest that Isaiah was not in control of his message. It seems to me that although he soars away into the and although he sees things which are unspeakable almost, yet at the same time one gets the sense of Isaiah being perfectly in control. Somehow he's got the capacity, he's got the ability to put the thing into language. He's somehow able to put it over to us and put it over to us in no mean way, but in a, in, in a beautiful way. That's Isaiah. Uh, Isaiah seems almost detached from his ministry. There are times when one... One just doesn't see Isaiah through his ministry. You read through the book of Isaiah. Do you ever hear Isaiah? Really? Do you ever see Isaiah? Very rarely. You would almost think that, uh, uh, well, it's like almost like a, a gramophone. You're listening to a beautiful symphony. And you, you forget everything else but the actual message. It's the, the music of the message that captures you. You don't all the time think of, well, did Isaiah say that? Was that Isaiah? Well, I never did. You don't think about that at all. You're taken up with what Isaiah's telling you. You're taken up with what Isaiah's got to say. You're absolutely captured by Isaiah's way, a way of putting it. But now thus saith the Lord that created thee, O Jacob, and he that formed thee, O Israel, fear not, for I have redeemed thee. I am thy God. And so he, go, he goes on. With Jeremiah, it's all quite different. I don't know, of course, if you've been reading, and I might say 
that if you don't read uh, these books, don't expect to get much out of them. Please don't blame me for being boring if you don't read uh, these books. You won't get anything out of what we say because I'm taking it all for granted that you read, you understand. I'm not explaining a lot of things because we cannot do it. With Jeremiah, it's quite different. It really is quite different. There is little of Isaiah's style, little of Isaiah's beauty of language. Indeed, Jeremiah is quite definitely disjointed at times. Uh, he's a most amazingly disjointed person. Um, there are points when we might justly um, say that Isaiah, uh, Jeremiah is not in control. He has the most terrible outbursts. He says in one place, for instance, Oh, Lord, thou hast deceived me. And I was deceived. What an outburst. Another place he says, when he sits down, he says, I'm not going to get up and speak anymore. And then he said, goes on to say, But the things are fire in my bones. I can't stop it. Another place, he complains to the Lord bitterly about the way that the Lord has led him. He says to the Lord, When I first found your word, I ate it. It was a joy to me. Now look what it's done with me. It's made me, given me an incurable pain. Why? Why should I spend all my days, he says to the Lord, like this? Now, this isn't like Isaiah. Uh, uh, we never got any glimpse of Isaiah such as this. This is entirely different. And all the way through the book of Jeremiah, you get these, uh, not quite, I wonder how to describe them, outbursts, these, these, these sudden... Uh, uh, times when, when you see into the prophet's heart and you're only too conscious uh, of the man. Uh, everywhere through the book of Jeremiah, sooner or later you're brought back to the man. Uh, you see him at every point. And this is one of the most remarkable features of this book uh, of Jeremiah. One can justly question whether uh, Jeremiah is in actual fact in control of his message. It seems to be so painful for him. It seems to have cut so deeply into him himself that far from being like Isaiah, detached from his ministry, he seems to be so involved in it, so bound up with it, and finds it all so unspeakably painful uh, to uh, exercise and to fulfill. And then again, he seems to repeat himself a lot. And that's a thing that Isaiah hardly does at all. But Jeremiah repeats himself again and again. He says often the same words again and again. When you read through the book, you will find there are certain little cliches, certain phrases that come back again and again into what Jeremiah says. One would say that although in his own right he's a, he's a speaker, and he's a great speaker, nevertheless, of course, coming next to Isaiah, he, he cannot be put into the same category as a speaker. With, at least with, with Isaiah. But I think not only do we find that he repeats himself rather a lot, and he hasn't got the felicity of phrase and, uh, and wording that uh, Isaiah has, but you know there's little of a, a harmonious unfolding of his message. I don't know whether you've read Jeremiah, but really there is little of a harmonious unfolding. Uh, of his message. Jeremiah has been described by some scholars as fragmentary. Uh, others have said he's utterly confusing. Now, I'm just quoting one or two. Utterly confusing. 
uh, a man that is hard to really understand exactly what is the theme uh, of his message. Of course, added to that is the fact that the whole book of, of, of Isaiah contains something like 51 distinct prophecies, and not, not hardly any of them are in chronological order. They're, they're all jumbled up. There's a reason for that, which we may see later. But they are jumbled up, and consequently, there is no real unfolding uh, theme uh, so much in the book of Jeremiah. Now, these are all introductory things that we must take note of. But what does impress us about Jeremiah? What is the thing that really impresses us about Jeremiah? Not the beauty of his language, not the beauty of his style, but I will tell you what impresses us about Jeremiah and leaves the most indelible and lasting impression. It is the beauty of the man. Jeremiah leaves us with a, 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 a picture that is hard, once you've seen it, ever to arrange of the most beautiful and quiet spirit in the hands of God, called to the most unbelievably difficult task. It is that which impresses us in Jeremiah, and I believe that as we study the book of Jeremiah, we're going to see that that is the key to Jeremiah. It is not so much the message as the man. More than any other book uh, in this division, the man stands out in bold relief. It is Jeremiah's character, which is the message. And you know, it would seem that he is more important than the message he was called upon to proclaim. The Holy Spirit has paid little attention to chronology, putting his message into order, as we would say, historically, as if the Holy Spirit is seeking to emphasize one thing, get the man. Understand the man. Everything else is secondary. The man is himself the testimony. The man is himself the prophet. And when you've got to understand the man, you will begin to understand something of his function in the purpose of God. It seems to me that the Holy Spirit is seeking to leave with every one of us through this book, through, with, leave with the Lord's people an indelible impression of the character uh, of the prophet. Well, they were, it's certainly true. That in the book of Jeremiah, the man stands revealed more than in any other prophetical book. And you know, it is interesting that we who say so often that we should not draw attention to ourselves, that we should not in any way bring ourselves onto the platform, all of which is absolutely right, that we should not in any way intrude into the message God calls upon us to give. It is therefore all the more so solemnizing, all the more sobering, that this book of Jeremiah chains us to the instrument. It will not let us get away from the man who was the messenger. We are brought back again and again to this man. And we gaze, and we gaze in awe 
upon a naked spirit and a naked heart in the hands of God. We, we as it were, see uh, Jeremiah unveiled as people of his own day never saw him. We are permitted to see into the heart of Jeremiah. We are permitted to see the inner conflict of the ministry. We are permitted to see the agony, and that is not too strong a word to describe Jeremiah, the agony that lay behind his function. It's, it's a tremendous book when you begin to see something of what it cost the man. You know, that man could have had an easy life. He could have had a popular life. He, we shall see something in a moment, I trust, by the grace of God, of the kind of man he was. And we shall begin to, we shall probably begin to say, well, I knew someone rather like that type of person. And you'll always find they're popular people. They're usually, generally speaking, popular, sought-after people. He could have been a popular, sought-after man who was, in every way, uh, a great help and aid to all, uh, looked to by everyone. Instead, he becomes the exact opposite, a man forsaken, a man shunned, a man uh, just given up to utter loneliness. Well, you know, when we look at this man, we see not only uh, something of his reactions, but we see peerless sincerity, peerless sincerity. Of course, all the prophets were sincere, but you know, Jeremiah was the... Uh, the height uh, of sincerity uh, amongst the prophets. So sincere do we find Jeremiah to be that he will never hoodwink any, himself or anyone else for one single moment. When he's got a complaint against the Lord, out it comes into the open. He is peerlessly sincere. And it's one of the loveliest things of all when he's contradicted to his face by another prophet, so-called, Hananiah, who said, Thus says the Lord, and contradicted every single word he'd ever said. Uh, and challenged him in public. The beautiful spirit of Jeremiah when he just said to him in such a sincere way, breathed through his very answer, Oh, very well, Hananiah, we will wait and see. If in two years Babylon collapses, then the Lord is with you, Hananiah. But if not, you are a false prophet. He was prepared to be himself in the search light of God. He was so sincere and prepared himself to be destroyed if there was anything insincere or deceitful about him. I think that is one of the most remarkable things about Jeremiah, his absolute sincerity. No, no sanctimonious piety about him, no superiority that sort of is distant and uh, all authoritative and so on. Nothing like that at all. About Jeremiah there is that amazingly beautiful spirit of reality in which he's prepared to call things by their right names even when he sees them in himself. And you know, we watch with Jeremiah, we watch in wonder how much God dares to do with a servant of his. Very rarely does the Lord dare to put one of his children into the flame, 
in the way in which he put Jeremiah. And of course there are others such as Daniel and others like that. That he was able to, he was able to, as it were, take a great risk. You know, everything depended upon Jeremiah. Supposing Jeremiah had flung up and said, I can't go on with this, Lord. I'm getting out. Supposing he said, I just can't go through with this a moment longer, Lord. I'm, I'm quitting. As he indeed said at one point, that he had said he was going to sit down and never going to speak again. Just supposing, just supposing. You see, do you realize the risk the Lord takes with some of us when he puts us into situations and dares to make us his own vindication, his own justification, puts us sometimes into the very hands of Satan himself and allows Satan to do his, his, his vilest because we are the vindication of God. Mm, we see this in Jeremiah we see how much the Lord is able to trust Jeremiah with uh, in his own day. Well, there we are. Jeremiah has always, to this very day, been a most, a most misunderstood man. I suppose there's no man so misunderstood as Jeremiah. Poor man, in his own day, he suffered being misunderstood, and he's, he's suffered it in every generation since. Still today, people call people who are miserable, doleful, mournful, wailing, complaining people, they call them Jeremiahs. They say, oh, so and so, such a Jeremiah. Poor Jeremiah, nothing like that at all. And you see the heart of the man, see everything that he went through, see at times his spirit is anything but doleful uh, and mournful. Uh, sometimes when we would expect him to be all joyful, he's a bit doleful. But other times when we would expect him to be all doleful and complaining, he's full of praise, as we shall see. He's a misunderstood man. And I think it is rare that we find people with an understanding or an appreciation of Jeremiah. I wonder how many people came to the study this evening and think, oh dear, Jeremiah. Much nicer to do something else than Jeremiah. Somehow other, it's, it's, well, he's rarely appreciated and rarely understood. And yet, Jeremiah, and all would agree here, all scholars agree, strangely enough, on this point, that Jeremiah came nearer to the spirit of the Lord Jesus than any other uh, prophet uh, in the Old Testament. He approached the Lord as the man of sorrows, in spirit identified with the Lord in the fellowship of forsakenness, of loneliness, of being misunderstood, of rejection, more than any other person in the Old Testament era. That in itself is one of the most striking facts uh, of the book and life of Jeremiah. Now, what about the authorship and date? Well, I'm very glad to be able to say that we haven't got a lot to, to have to say upon the matter of authorship and date. Usually we have to say quite a lot, but tonight we really haven't got to say very much. The book not only clearly claims to be the words of Jeremiah, but I thank the Lord for it, and I think everyone else should, it also tells us the exact method by which the book has come to us. Um, that is most rare. Um, Often it's passed over. Now, is this not interesting? <laughs> that in all the other books where, as it were, the Holy Spirit is not making too much of the man, of the instrument, he overlooks it. But in the book in which it is absolutely an integral part of the message and the theme of that part of the Word of God, he abundantly makes clear 
that it is the words of Jeremiah and gives us the actual way in which it was written. Now, no other prophetical book uh, do we have that. Let us look uh, at the evidence. Jeremiah 1, verse 1. The words of Jeremiah, son of Hilkiah, priest that were in Anathoth in the land of Benjamin. That's quite clear. Claims to be, claims to be the words of Jeremiah. From beginning to end, as far as we can see, it seems to be the words of Jeremiah. Now, if you look right through to chapter 51, you will find another interesting little point. Last verse, last phrase, the last verse of 51, 64, verse 64. Thus far are the words of Jeremiah. Perfectly clear. In no other prophetical book have we, have we been told so utterly clearly what are the words of Jeremiah. We're told the words of Jeremiah. Now then, we're told the way that in which the book has come to us. Chapter 36, verse 4. Some of you, of course, I have no doubt will know this. You must forgive. Chapter 36, verse 4. Then Jeremiah called Baruch, the son of Neriah, and Baruch wrote from the mouth of Jeremiah all the words of the Lord which he had spoken unto him upon a roll of a book. Now, if you look at verse uh, 32, you will, I hope, remember the story. It was the roll that was read to King Jehoiakim. He cut it up column by column with a penknife and threw it into the fire. As each column was read to him, he destroyed it. Verse 32, it says, Then took Jeremiah another roll, gave it to Barak the scribe, the son of Neriah, who wrote therein from the mouth of Jeremiah all the words of the book which Jehoiakim, king of Judah, had burned in the fire, and there were added besides unto them many like words. Well, now that's very interesting. Now if you look at chapter 45, verse 1, the word that Jeremiah the prophet spake unto Baruch, Baruch the son of Neriah, when he wrote these words in a book at the mouth of Jeremiah in the fourth year of Jehoiakim, the son of Josiah, king of Judah. So it is perfectly clear, uh, according to the, the script itself, that it is not only the words of Jeremiah, but Baruch acted like, as his secretary and took down by dictation all the words of Jeremiah. Now, it is an interesting fact that there has been little controversy over the authorship of the book of Jeremiah. Nearly all agree that it was indeed written by Jeremiah, uh, 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 spoken by Jeremiah, written down by Baruch. But some modern scholars, and I think we can dismiss them, make the more distinct prophecies the work of a later hand, because they say that you can't possibly prophesy events before they take place. So some, strange enough, intelligent and intellectual men have had to chop up Jeremiah and put a whole lot of his more distinct prophecies concerning the future, at least after the return from the exile. So they say, making rational sense uh, out of the prophecies of this book. I think we can dismiss that. So it seems quite clear that the author was Jeremiah. It was written down by dictation by Baruch, Jeremiah's close friend and his disciple. 
from Jeremiah 42 to 44, and also chapter 52, it is perfectly clear that it could not have been in its present form before the year 585 B.C. That is because from 42 to 44 is the story of Jeremiah being forcibly taken into Egypt by the refugees. He didn't want to go. We'll learn a little about that perhaps next week. But he, he didn't want to go, and he was forcibly taken down. And he gives his last recorded message, the one over which tradition tells us the Jews in Egypt became so angry that they stoned him to death there and then. And, of course, to this day in Cairo, his body is supposed to be embalmed and kept in one of the old synagogues in the ancient part of Cairo. He is supposed to have met his death anyway in Egypt. Whether it was by stoning, we don't know. It's very likely it was. That would have been, it seems to me, the fitting end of his rejected ministry. Chapter 52 deals with Jehoiakim in uh, captivity, in exile in Babylon, and how at last he was brought to the king's table and given food for the rest of his days till he died. So it seems to me that it's quite clear that uh, it must have been at least uh, after uh, 585 uh, B.C. Well, there we are. I've already mentioned that the prophecies are not in chronological order at all. It is indeed almost fragmentary in character, um, although each part is introduced by some sentence, such as the word of the law by Jeremiah, or um, it is actually dated. It's very interesting how all the many parts, though not in chronological order, dotting about over five reigns, um, are in actual fact, many of them dated, in the such and such a year of Jehoiakim, uh, king of Judah, or in such and such a year of Zedekiah, or so on. It's uh, interesting that they should be uh, so carefully uh, dated. And then again, we ought also to note uh, something that might surprise one or two who uh, well, perhaps more easily stumbled, uh, but there are very wide differences between the Hebrew text and the Septuagint text, uh, more so than in any other book in the Old Testament. Uh, not only in the words used, but in the actual order of material. Uh, uh, a rather strange and somewhat interesting fact. Well, we leave all that. What's the background of Jeremiah? Have we anything we can find about the background of Jeremiah? Well, politically, Jeremiah's day was a very interesting one. You see this great kingdom here, that, and this map is called Assyria. Uh, in Jeremiah's day, Assyria had vanished. Babylonia, or Babylon, had emerged as the victor. Suddenly, and... Uh, some years previous to Jeremiah, uh, Babylon had emerged as the top partner in a rather uneasy partnership that there had been between Assyria and Babylon. And Babylon was now the victor, and the great empire, the great Assyrian empire, which had lasted over three centuries, crumbled away uh, into the hands of Babylon. But that was not the end. Old Egypt, which had been one of the great powers of the world for so many centuries, was now waiting as she saw Assyria crumble into the dust. She was waiting to regain her position 
as the mistress of the nations. And consequently, when she felt that the time was ready, she, she struck, seeking somehow or other to uh, bring a Babylon under her control. Consequently, here was Egypt, and here was Babylon, and in between were all the, what shall we call them, the undecided states, of which Judah, little Judah, <coughs> and these great giants faced each other across the arena, and all the smaller states, Ammon, Moab, Syria, uh, and the rest, Edom, and so on, they had somehow or other to line up behind one or other uh, of these great powers. In actual fact, uh, Egypt marched against Babylon and was uh, entirely defeated. Uh, uh, the result was that Babylon became the great uh, mistress, as it were, of the nations for quite a few uh, generations. Well, that was the great political scene of Jeremiah's day, of his life. It just simply meant that Judah was all the time uh, being swayed. Should she submit to Babylon? Should she link herself with Egypt? There was a very strong pro-Egyptian party in amongst the people of God who said that the whole future of Judah depended upon them being linked up with Egypt. And of course, I can't make it as interesting as it should be, but really it's a fascinating thing. It's just like modern politics. It, it, if we were to read it in the papers, editorials in the papers today, we would understand exactly uh, what was happening. If some, some of the papers were to argue that we should throw in our lot with the uh, European common market, uh, instead of linking up with others and so on, and they brought down this argument, that argument, the other argument, the other argument. We would read them all and we would begin to understand them and say, oh, well, we should do that. Others would say, no, we shouldn't do that. But it was all political, it was diplomatic. It was the question of security, national security, that was foremost in the minds uh, of the people. And, of course, Jeremiah was looked upon as the quizzler. <laughs> of his day, and that's the most important thing for us to understand. He was looked upon as the quizzling of his day because he unhesitatingly counseled submission to Babylon, not alliance with Babylon, submission to Babylon. You must not link up with Egypt. You must not seek Egypt's help. You must submit to Babylon. You must hand over everything to Babylon. So he was looked upon as the traitor, the quizzling of his day. And consequently, once he was arrested for being a deserter to the Chaldean forces that lay around the, the uh, city of Jerusalem. It's a most interesting study when you begin to see that. What a difficult thing it would be called upon. What, what a difficult thing he was called upon to do, to counsel that. Why the princes came to the king and said, look here, if you don't, if you don't shut Jeremiah up, he's, he's taking away the will to fight of the forces. That's exact words they use. He's taking their will away. He's weakening them. He's telling them, desert. One of Jeremiah's great prophecies was, desert. Leave the battlements. Get out. Go over to Count the Chaldeans. If you do, you'll save your life, he told them. Or, well, that's not the kind of man they all wanted uh, behind the walls uh, when they were fighting for their life and waiting for the Egyptian armies to come and, and, uh, and deliver them. Do you see? 
Um, consequently, Jeremiah's uh, uh, position was one of tremendous difficulty. Here he was. He realized something that many of us would have taken issue with him over. We would have said to him, submit to Babylon. The whole history of God's dealings with his people are utterly against any submission to Babylon. We must stand on our own legs and trust the Lord to deliver us. No, said Jeremiah, it's just where you've misunderstood. The Lord is sending his people into judgment. And nothing that you say now, nothing that you do now, can change that irrevocable edict of God. Therefore, your salvation lies in being absolutely submissive to what is the will of God, however terrible it seems. Now that showed a man who was not just trained in a college and therefore could give the right answers. It showed a man with spiritual discernment of perception who was able to understand the law of God in the light of his day. In other words, he had understanding of his times. Why, many of us, if we'd been there, would have upped and said, look here, we can show all kinds of things in the word of God that should say we should never submit to an alien power. Can't do that. The whole word of God. We're to be a separate people. Why, if some of would have said, remember Hezekiah? It's only 70 years ago. Remember Hezekiah? Why, in Hezekiah's day, they, they trusted in the Lord and they delivered him. No, you see, that's just the point. You can't just interpret the word of God. You can't just take so many doctrines and apply them. That's where people make the great mistake. They get all at sea over it. The point is, you've got to have understanding of the Lord and what the Lord is doing. The actual phase of God's economy in which we might find ourselves. We've got to understand it, know it, and see how the law of God is applied to that day. Here, it seemed to be a direct contradiction to all the Lord had ever said or done. Well, there we are. What more can we say about the background of Jeremiah? He was born 70 years after Isaiah had died. His ministry lasted over 40 years. He was a priest, and this is a strange combination, he was also a prophet. There were not many of the prophets who were also priests. Habakkuk was another, and also Ezekiel was another. These were not only prophets, they were priests. Now, Jeremiah was a priest and a prophet. He was the son of Hilkiah, not the high priest, but of the old high priestly family, the line of Abiathar, who was deposed, do you remember, by Solomon and banished to Anathoth. Do you remember that? There were two high priests in the days of David, Zadok and Abiathar. And do you remember how he David on his deathbed told Solomon to depose Abiathar because he had not been honest and straight and to put him out of the priesthood and banish him. Well, Jeremiah came of that line of the high priesthood. And he'd been born in Anathoth, two and a half miles from, ben from Jerusalem, a little town two and a half miles away, born there and brought up there. Do we know anything else about uh, Jeremiah? Uh, well, we know this, that the Lord called him when he was a teenager. Maybe another shock to some. We always think of the Lord. We always like to give the Lord rules. When he called Moses, he was an old, old man. When he called Jeremiah, he was a teenager. Jeremiah said, I am but a child. But the word in Hebrew is a youth. I am only a youth, not a little baby. He wasn't just being figurative. He was speaking the literal truth. I am but a youth. 
Do you mean to tell me that you've called me, you've set me to speak above nations, appointed me to a ministry to all these nations? Jeremiah said, I can't do it, Lord. I just cannot do it. He was a youth, a teenager, when the Lord laid hold of him. Of course, the Lord said that before he was even born, he had been appointed to this ministry. From his mother's womb, he had been set apart. But he was called, God actually broke into his life when he was a teenager, and there revealed to him his purpose for him. Now, that is interesting because it reveals something of the spirit of Jeremiah even as a boy. It meant that he was utterly prepared for what it meant to be the Lord's messenger. The Lord started young uh, with Jeremiah. Uh, you see, he, with Jeremiah, there was a willingness, though only a teenager, to go right through with the Lord from the beginning of his life with all the temptations that come with youth, to go right through with the Lord to the end, whatever it cost. And he was called upon, even from that age, to suffer many things that must have cost him a tremendous amount. Now, what was Jeremiah like? Oh, one other thing I ought to just mention, may not interest everyone, it might interest some. Jeremiah was one of the few prophets called upon to remain single. If you look in chapter 16 and verse 1, the Lord told him he was to have no children and he wasn't to marry. And so he remained to the end of his life a single man, which only accentuates his loneliness. You see, Jeremiah stands out as one of the loneliest figures uh, in the Old Testament. Um, others were allowed, indeed, uh, the rabbis always taught that if you weren't married, it was uh, not a good thing at all. It was a sign of God's blessing and goodness uh, that you should be uh, married and that you should have a family. But here, Jeremiah, again, was an exception. He was told to remain absolutely single because of the days in which he lived. He was going to live through the most terrible carnage that his generation had seen. Indeed, it was to be remembered for many, many, many generations. And the Lord said to Jeremiah, don't you marry? Don't you have a family? Because you're going to live through these days of carnage and everything's going to be destroyed. You just wholly keep yourself. What else can we find out about Jeremiah? Do we know anything about the man himself? Well, now we have to go not so much on references as a reading right through the whole book of Jeremiah. What do we find Jeremiah? What kind of man was Jeremiah? He was an exceedingly and remarkably sensitive man. There are times when, when you read through, and you must read through, and if I suggest you not only read through in the Revised Version, but you take the, the American Revised Standard Version, read it through in that, uh, you will, I think, begin to understand what a sensitive person uh, Jeremiah was. I, wouldn't, I don't think it would be doing him an injustice to say that he was soft. He was not the hard, burly kind of man that Elijah was, for instance or with uh, his character and fire uh, that he had. Uh, Jeremiah was, from what we can gather, a very affectionate, sympathetic, and sensitive man. It comes out in his reactions, his anguish of heart over having in any way to speak to people about uh, judgment. Um, and, and it comes out strange enough when he speaks to the other nations. He speaks, for instance, to Moab. 
And he, he speaks at the anguish of his spirit in, in having to bring a message to a country like Moab to say that they were going to be raised out of existence, right out of, uh, erased from human history. Well, that, I think, reveals a rather remarkable man, an affectionate man, sincere to a degree, and I think it would not be unjust to say that he was very highly strung and temperamental. I don't think there can be any other explanation for uh, the style of Jeremiah. Uh, it is not the style of a phlegmatic, uh, slow, reserved uh, type of person. Uh, the style of Jeremiah, and after all, even when the Lord saves us and redeems us, transforms us, we're still basically and temperamentally what we are. Uh, Jeremiah was a highly strung and temperamental type of person that felt very keenly uh, the suffering uh, not, not only he experienced, but above all and, and beyond everything, uh, the fact of the rejection of his message and therefore the coming catastrophe. I think we find this out too in the book of Lamentations which reveals the heart of Jeremiah very beautifully, uh, as I believe the kind of person that here uh, we have described. But above everything else, I think we could describe Jeremiah as intensely human. Now, what I always think that's a rather funny term to use because we're all human. Uh, can therefore someone be more human uh, than another? But we don't really uh, quite mean that, do we? When we say a person's intensely human, we mean that there is just not often the, uh, the sort of grip, the same grip, the same frigidity that there might be in some. There's not the same technical approach. When we say a person's intensely human, we mean that they feel, they understand, they're very sympathetic, very quick to react very quick to respond, an intensely human person. And I believe it was one of the commentators who has said to Jeremiah that no man was so soft and called to bring so hard a message. The message that he had to bring was a hard message. Now, Jeremiah, in one of the places speaks of the everlasting love of God. He says, the Lord said to him, I have loved thee, that is the people of God, with an everlasting love. Yet, you know, in actual fact, Jeremiah, being the kind of man he was, was called upon to bring a message that was entirely different to himself. Do you know, it's one of the most remarkable features in something, which again may surprise a good thing too, if it does surprise us, in this book. Again and again, the Lord says to Jeremiah, don't pray for them. You must not pray for them. Uh, I, don't, I don't want any prayer for this people. If you do pray, I won't listen to you. I think that's, uh, um, again, a somewhat uh, remarkable fact. In one place, when Jeremiah says, Lord, I must pray, then um, uh, he says to him, uh, the Lord says to him, if Moses and Samuel were to stand before me and to pray, I would not listen. I just would have nothing to do uh, with them. So you see, it's a rather hard message he's called upon to bear. 
a message of judgment and a message which seems to reveal the severity and almost the hardness of God. Well, there we are. He lived a life of trial. He lived a life of trouble. He lived a life of suffering. His message was wholly rejected to the end. I wonder if most of us realize the sufferings of Jeremiah. Can I just catalog just a few of the sufferings of Jeremiah? Just a few of the physical sufferings of Jeremiah. It may uh, uh, be of interest to some. Uh, in the reign of Jehoiakim, uh, he was put into stocks. He was, made, he was humiliated before everyone. That may not seem to uh, be much to us. But the man who did it was the chief of the house of God. And he did it within the courts of the Lord's house. Jeremiah was put into stocks, riveted into them, and left there for any refuse or taunting or teasing, spitting or anything else that anyone cared to take out on Jeremiah. The idea was that if anyone had any job to pay back, anything that they wanted to sort of hit back uh, over, uh, they could take out uh, all, vent all their anger and spite upon whoever was in the stocks. Jeremiah was left there a night until the man had a bad time over the night, and so he should, and released him uh, the next day. <laughs> then, a little later, you, you will find the same reign of Jehoiakim. Uh, he was told to go and take the, the role of the law, all these prophecies, up to that time, and read them. Uh, he did so. The nobles heard. They asked him if he would come up and read it to them. He went up and read it to them. They were a little horrified when they heard what was uh, in the roll. And they said, do you mind? We could take this. We want to read it to the king. The king was there. He was, it was winter. He was warming himself around the fire. He listened to it. As each column was read, I told you, he cut the strip off and flung it into the fire. Jeremiah escaped that time. Later he was arrested because uh, they thought he was deserting. But he was freed when uh, they were asking for his uh, death, his execution, by a very good officer of a leading noble. Then, a little later on, uh, and these are only just a few of the more extreme things, he was re-arrested in the reign of King Zedekiah, the last of the kings of Judah, and was flung into a dungeon. Uh, this dungeon described is called a dungeon cell in the revised uh, version. Um, it is not very easy to describe, but it was a very deep uh, cellar within a house, a private house, the house of Jonathan, that we understand to be one of the leading nobles uh, in the royal court. He was flung into that and left there almost died. And there's no doubt about it, he would have died because those things were infested uh, with vermin and rats particularly. And uh, no one lived very long uh, under those circumstances. Jeremiah was left there uh, without much but managed to get an audience uh, with the uh, king and to plead uh, the, the point of his release and was put into... Um, the court. He was chained in the court of the prison of the king's house. In other words, he was allowed a little more freedom. But the worst thing of all was when some nobles uh, in the uh, uh, court uh, heard Jeremiah, realized that he was uh, uh, causing uh, disaffection in the ranks of the people. The whole, the whole city was besieged and was about to fall. 
And here they had this man they considered to be an absolute quizzling, and now all their aims were bent on eradicating this absolute menace in the midst of the people. They considered him to be a, a traitor, and they took him, it says, and they flung him down a well. Your version, the authorized version, says a dungeon, but the word is a system. It was a long, very deep well. They let him down with ropes, and it says he sank into the mud. There was no water there. You see, uh, the siege meant all water was used, and uh, he sank up to his arms uh, in the mud, and would undoubtedly slowly have been choked, uh, sank, just left for dead. It was then that the Ethiopian that uh, Jeremiah remembers in one of his prophecies uh, comes to him and asks permission from the king to rescue him, and sends down ropes, and there's a very touching little picture which is so absolutely accurate and genuine. It says they took old, worn-out clothes and rags, tied them into a bundle on a rope and let it down, and they shouted down the well to Jeremiah, who must have been an emaciated figure, just bone, and undoubtedly an older man now, and would have probably never lived by just being hauled up by a rope. They told him, put it under your armpits and then put the rope round you and under the rag so that it doesn't wear on you. Which was a very touching and somewhat genuine little sidelight on the accuracy of the account. You don't generally put that kind of thing in uh, if it's not uh, a pretty genuine eyewitness account. And they brought Jeremiah up and down. I tell you, Jeremiah's life was a life of trial, it was a life of trouble, it was a life of suffering right through to the end. There were, however, a band of faithful people who were linked to him in love and in vision. And the most notable of those people were, they're here on the board, Zephaniah, uh, Jeremiah must have been a very young man in Zephaniah's day, uh, Habakkuk, Obadiah, Jeremiah, then there was, of course, uh, Shalem, his uncle, his aunt, as far as we know, Huldah, the prophetess, who was so used of God in the revival in Josiah's day. And, of course, quite a band of others who were really utterly faithful. They were bound together in love and vision. Uh, I think there's something very lovely about those people. In the exile, too, there was Ezekiel and Daniel at the same time. Well, there you are. We can see, but summing up, there were three periods in, in uh, Jeremiah's life. The first period is in the reign of King Josiah, who was the good king, in whose reign there was one of the most remarkable revivals of Judah's history. And it, Jeremiah must have been a youngster in the reign of Josiah, must have seen that great movement of the Spirit of God, and above all, he must have been deeply impressed by the discovery of the law in the closed temple. You know, some scholars believe that Jeremiah's words, thy word was found, and I did eat it, referred to the discovery of the lost realm, of the lost law. Others just brought it out, it caused a superficial return to the Lord. But Jeremiah said, thy word was found, and I did eat upon it, and it became my joy. Uh, there's no doubt about it that the finding of the law in the temple, in the day of Josiah, must have had a tremendous effect upon the young Isaiah. Um, we could mention many other things as well. But, you know, the tragic end of Josiah, you know, he died when he was only 31 years of age for going out against King Pharaoh, who was going up to meet 
the ba uh, Nebuchadnezzar in battle. Uh, he was told not to go out. He went out. He lost his life at the hands of Pharaoh Necho. Um, that must have had a tremendous effect also upon Jeremiah because he must have realized that the end was near. If the Lord allowed a good king to end in such a tragic way, then judgment must be just at hand. And from that point on, you find Jeremiah's ministry takes on a, a very definite and passionate note of warning and entreaty because of what was about to come. Then you remember uh, Josiah was uh, succeeded by Jehoahaz, um, who was deposed by the Pharaoh in place of Jehoiakim, who reigned for 11 years, was a very evil one, man indeed. Uh, Jeremiah suffered very much at his hands, who was then succeeded by his son, Jehoiakim, who only reigned three months, taken away into captivity by Nebuchadnezzar in the first great stage of the exile, uh, with most of the artisans, craftsmen, many of the nobles uh, were taken at that point. And Zedekiah was put into the place of Jehoiakim by uh, Nebuchadnezzar, who reigned for 11 years until the fall of Jerusalem. It was during that time, that period, that uh, uh, Jeremiah was imprisoned so many times. And then the third period of his uh, life, we could say, was the last part. After Jerusalem was destroyed and the nation went into exile, um, Jeremiah was allowed to remain under the governor, Gedaliah. You remember the story how he went back to remain under the leadership of Gedaliah? Gedaliah was murdered. And in the resulting confusion, a whole band, the rest of the people that remained, were allowed to remain, they fled to Egypt and they took forcibly, took Jeremiah and Baruch uh, with them into Egypt. And his last recorded message in chapter 43 to chapter 44 here in his book was given in Egypt, which we believe, according to that old tradition, led to his stoning. Well, that's the life of Jeremiah. That's his background. <clears throat> well, I think we'll have to end there. But, you know, I might just say one... Mm, leave this point, draw it all to a conclusion in this way, in preparation for next week. What would you say in the light of all that is the key to the book of Jeremiah? It's quite clear that the key is bound up not with the message, but it's bound up with the man. It's bound up with Jeremiah himself. And I believe that's borne out in the fact that the Holy Spirit has not bothered to put the prophecies into chronological order. There is a reason for it. It's because the key to this part of God's word is bound up with the man. What then could we say is the key? This is the key, I believe. The function of Jeremiah in God's great purpose was Preparation for recovery. Something had been lost. Something was now under the judgment of God. Jeremiah's ministry was the preparation 
for the recovery of that thing that had been lost. Now, it's born at, at first, it doesn't seem the least bit apparent, but after a while, it becomes quite clear on reflection that that is the key. You will find all little, little things that lead to it. Things like this. I have appointed thee to pluck up, destroy, overthrow, and so on, to plant and to build a destructive ministry in order to prepare for construction for recovery. It is one of the most interesting facts that Jeremiah is linked with Daniel, and Daniel says that his whole ministry burst into flame when he discovered in the book of Jeremiah something utterly rejected in the day of Jeremiah, that there were 70 years only of captivity. And when that was ended, they would go back. And as soon as Daniel said that, he sort of almost said, well, praise the Lord, let's get on with the job. What was the job? He got on his knees and started praying. So it's very interesting that in the Old Testament, we have three preparatory ministries. Only three. Uh, Isaiah is the great foundation of all the prophets. Then we get Jeremiah, note the order, Ezekiel, Daniel. These three prophets are the great preparatory ministries for recovery in the Old Testament. Later on we have three men who are not preparing for recovery, but actually recovering. Zerubbabel, Ezra, Nehemiah. But the three great preparatory ministries are Jeremiah first, Ezekiel next, Daniel next. What is the key to those three? Jeremiah is the essential character that the Lord must have for recovery. That's preparation for recovery. Essential inward character. What is Daniel? Now this is most interesting. Daniel is not called a prophet. The rabbis never included Daniel amongst the prophets. They said he wasn't a prophet. They said he got another function. Do you know what Daniel's function was? Jeremiah then his, his the key to Jeremiah is the essential inward character necessary for recovery Ezekiel is the essential object defined it's the house board. and Daniel is the essential ministry When you get those three men combined, all overlapping, and yet all unfolding one from the other, you have the great preparatory ministry of the Old Testament. Preparatory to what? Preparatory, pre preparatory to recovery. When Daniel finishes his ministry, they've already gone back. Daniel didn't go back. He overlived their return by two years. He stayed. Some of us would have said that's very naughty, very wrong. Daniel should have gone back. If, he'd, if his whole life had been taken up in prayer for this object, he should have gone back. Ezekiel may well have lived, we don't know, but they, they didn't go back. Their job was to keep alive in the exile a remnant who would be the means by which God would fulfill his purpose and bring in the Christ. Build the house of God, recover the land, and bring in the Christ. There we are. We have a much more that to look at next week when we come to the key to Jeremiah.
we shall look at a good deal more the character that is so essential to recovery.